Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. As we were listening to that wonderful uh, offering song about freedom, I just was I just was reflecting, kind of went back over you know, all the years I've been trying to pastor about who's free and who's not, about how you lose your freedom and how you hold on to it, about what freedom looks like. It really is a wonderful word. It's a biblical word, this idea that you're you're free to be who God made you to be. You're free to follow God where he's called you to follow. And uh, I guess I've lived long enough now that I've seen a lot of lives uh, in not in freedom, but in bondage. What's the difference between a life that ends in freely following God and becoming everything he intended you to be in a life that ends in bondage to petty feelings and small gripes and silly grievances. Well, when I read a story like this, one of the things that I think about is that one of the factors in our own freedom, one of the the influences in our freedom, one of the the powers that affects our freedom is the devil. I think that's one of the reasons why this story is in our Gospels. Jesus has been baptized. Uh, he's now preparing to launch into his public mission. He's, he's spent 30 years in private, and now he's going to start his calling in life. And immediately, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil does not want Jesus to fulfill his mission. The devil does not want him to become what God wanted him to become. 
And remember, these stories are in here for our own edification. And the same thing is true for you, beloved. There is a power at work in the universe that wants to keep the people on the streets on the street. That wants to keep the people behind the machine guns behind the machine guns. That wants to keep the addict addicted. There is a power at work in the world that works against human flourishing. Now, how does he do that? I think that's one of the reasons for the story. Well, I uh, park now over in the, 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 the garage behind the movie theater, and every day I walk in, I, I usually try to pray Jeremiah 29.7 as I walk in and, and, and usually look at what movies are showing. Um, yeah, it's kind of an odd juxtaposition sometimes. And this week I noticed that there is... Uh, uh, a movie theater, uh, a movie about uh, demonic possession. It seems like every summer there's one where somebody's horribly demonically oppressed, and why anybody would want to go watch that uh, is beyond me. I've seen it in real life, and it's not something you want to see. But uh, but I, I thought as I walked by it the other day, and I was just kind of praying for the city that that's probably how most people think Satan oppresses human beings. That he's just kind of this goofy, yucky, wicked thing out there. And uh, every once in a while, every rare uh, year or so, he plucks off some poor, sappy soul and possesses them. And their head spins around, they throw them across the room, and it's a horrible, yucky thing. And thank God that's never happened to me. Well, the Bible does talk about uh, those kind of things. But far more normal, I think, is what we see in this story tonight. That Satan oppresses us, not through satanic churches and uh, demonic possessions, although those are real, but more often through subtle lies. Very tiny, almost imperceptible distortions of God's truth that we build into our belief system and that affect us and distort us and rob us of freedom the rest of our lives. So let's look at how the enemy uh, tries to do that to Jesus and how Jesus responds. Uh, We notice already that the, the main characters in the story are in the first verse, Jesus, the Spirit, and Satan. And the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Now that's interesting because we're taught to pray, lead me not into temptation. Jesus prays for the disciples of the cross or in the garden, pray that you might not enter into temptation. And yet here, the Spirit leads Jesus into temptation. Well, what could that mean? Well, if you step back and you look at how temptation happens in the Old and the New Testament, it's used one of two ways. Sometimes it means seduced by the enemy to destroy you. Sometimes it means tested by God to prove you. And the idea seems to be that God is sovereign over temptation. And sometimes, we see this in the book of Job, he will allow you to be tempted to prove you, to test you, to reveal your your faith. And that's what happens in uh, the wilderness. 
Now, notice something else about uh, the testing before we, we look at it in detail. Jesus has been fasting 40 days. He's very hungry. He's very weak. Notice also that he's in the wilderness, which is a place of great alienation and isolation. He's, so he's hungry, he's tired, he's weak, and he's lonely. Now, and he's without resources. Now, notice also that this is a time of tremendous transition in his life. And what I'd suggest to you is that while we can be tempted many times during our lives, one of the places where you're most vulnerable is when you're in a time of transition. And then when you add to that the other factors that make a man or a woman vulnerable to temptation, fatigue, hunger, weariness, and isolation, being lonely. Those are the times when we are most ripe for temptation. Well, the devil's very strategic. He looks for opportunities, and he thinks he finds one when the Spirit leads the devil into the wilderness. And so he tempts him three different ways. The first one takes place in verses 3 and 4. And uh, let's just look at it again. The tempter came and said to him, If, in, in the Greek that would mean, Since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The, the Judean wilderness um, is uh, strewn with these little rocks that are about the size of a small loaf of bread. And Jesus answers by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what's happening here? Well, the devil probably, we don't know exactly how this happens, the text doesn't say, probably has a dialogue with Jesus' mind. Because that's the way that he normally tempts us, through our thoughts. And so he comes and he says to Jesus, Hey, you know, I know you're hungry, and since you're the Son of God, you have the power to do this, uh, why don't you just take this little loaf-shaped rock here and turn it into bread? I know you can do that. Uh, why don't you do that? And so Jesus quotes Scripture to him. Now what's interesting is where the Scripture's from. It's from a part of the book of Deuteronomy that's looking at the time that the children of Israel were fed by God in the, in the wilderness. And let me read the whole passage that Jesus is quoting from. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know and your fathers didn't know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus, in responding to the devil, brings up this great story of how God provided for Israel in his way, in his time. And, and so Jesus essentially is saying, yes, I am hungry, but I am fully dependent on God for my Provision, I will eat when he tells me to eat. I'm not going to take matters into my own hand. I'm going to trust him for my provision. You see the, the subtle lie of the, of the devil? Uh, Stephen did such a good job last night or last week talking about the Greek word for diabolos, which means the splitter or splitting off. See what he wants to do? He wants to split Jesus off from the Father 
and he wants to split Jesus off from the mission. And later we'll see that one of the things he wants to do is split us off from each other. Anytime you see splitting going on from God, from the mission, from one another, guess who's in the room? Well, the way he's trying to do it is by introducing a subtle lie to Jesus. And, and essentially what he says is, Jesus, you've got to provide for yourself, you know. I mean, this has gone on long enough. It's time to take things into your own hand, don't you see? And you're the one who has to provide here. And that's a lie that the devil often uses to deceive us as well. And I bet, I bet a bunch of us are struggling with it tonight. And the lie goes just like this. At the end of the day, I'm responsible for my own provision. At the, at the end of the day, it's really up to me to provide for my needs. Of course, that's not what Scripture says. Abraham calls God the Lord Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Paul says to the Philippians, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. The psalmist says God is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. God is our provider. But Satan often tempts us, saying, Yeah, 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 I know he provided all those other times, but let, let's be honest. It's up to you. Your business thriving, your wife coming home, staying a little bit more with the baby, taking care of your aging parents. Ultimately, it's on you. It's up to what you can pull off. That's one of Satan's lies. Now, suppose that you believe that. You know, we talk about the basement and the first floor. Nobody would say they believe that on the first floor. But down in the basement, in your subconscious, a lot of us believe at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my own provision. What would be some symptoms that you, you believe that? Well, here's one, Sabbath breaking. God gives us a Sabbath to remind us we're not our own providers. He just says, one day out of six, I want you to stop. And the reason for that is he wants you to be reminded on that one day when you're not working that you are not responsible for your provision. So if you can't take one day a week and stop working, you've bought a lie about who provides. Another would be technological addiction. If you cannot get through a meal or a meeting without checking your phone, if you feel anxious without not having it near you, if you're always thinking, if I, if I turn it off, if I put it away, I might miss a client, I might miss a sale, I might miss my agent... Uh, I, I, I might miss the president calling me to solve the Middle East crisis. Who knows what I might miss if I put down that phone. If you can't do it, you're providing for yourself. Hoarding would be another symptom. A lot of us are just not generous uh, because we believe we're responsible for our own provision. And we think, you know, I'll give when I have enough. I'm tight right now. I'll give when I have more. Biblical giving never comes out of what you can provide. Biblical giving comes out of faith in God as your provider. If you don't give much, it's a sign that you think you're a provider. Now, here'd be another one. You may disagree with me. I, I may be going grandpa on you here. I'm not sure. Um, 
I see this one in young men. And again, I, I, I don't want to be the guy who's always reading his own generational stuff into sermons. I'm sure I do it. But I think I'm on to something here. Here, here. Here's what I hear again and again and again from young men. Oh, I'm not ready to get married. I, I've got I've to figure out my career. I've got to be a provider. I've got to get all this nailed down. Then I'll get married. Well, brothers, that's dumb. <laughs> First of all, the minute you think you've got it nailed down, you'll get fired. You don't have it nailed down. You never have it nailed down. You never have it nailed down. And if you are waiting on having everything together so that you can provide for your family before you make the move towards a young lady, you bought a lie. And the lie is you're responsible for providing for your family. You're not. And to get even a little messier, I would suggest the reason why some single men have such a hard time figuring it out is because God intended to humble them and put a woman in their life to help them provide and help them figure it out. Another symptom would be uh, financial anxiety. And, and, and let's be honest, that's an area where many of us struggle. But if you're crippled by fear over finances, that's a sign that you believe you're the provider. If, if you're in a job transition, if your company's not generating the kind of income that you want, if, if you feel vastly underemployed, yes, that's stressful, that's hard, that's normal. But if you are crippled by anxiety over finances, that's because there's a, there's a bug, there's a virus in your hard drive. And it, it's a lie. The lie says, you know, you're responsible for this. So if this is something that you're struggling with, any of those things, I, I'd say this time, go spend some time with the Lord's teaching in Matthew 6, 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't be passive. Don't just accept this. Look at your emotions and trace them back to the false beliefs that are creating the emotions. Don't just take it. There needs to be an aggressive, assertive response by standing firm in the Word of God, identifying the lies that you believe, and claiming truth. God's truth is powerful to overcome temptation. Now, the second temptation is, starts in verse 5. The devil took him to a holy city, to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So there's a, a vision, uh, evidently, or perhaps he literally did this, we don't know, but the devil comes to Jesus and, and takes him up to the top of the temple, 180 feet high, and sets him on the pinnacle of it and, and says, jump. And then he quotes him Psalm 91. This is interesting, isn't it? That Satan himself quotes scripture. Many of our problems and our bondage come from distorted beliefs that aren't truly in scripture. I think that's how Satan knows he can get Christians who are word people 
they're not going to believe Oprah. They're going to believe Scripture twisted. And so he twists the Scripture and tells Jesus to jump, quotes Psalm 91, and says, you know, if you jump, the Lord will send angels and they'll catch you. Now, how does Jesus respond? Well, he again refers to another biblical story. It's found in Exodus 17. It's that one where the children of Israel are uh, thirsty, and they start quarreling with Moses. They even threaten to stone him. And he says, God, what am I to do with these people? And God says, hit the rock, and water will come out. So he hits the rock, water, water comes out, and Moses names the place Meribah for, te- for the word testing. And then Moses says, don't test the Lord your God. That's the passage that Jesus is quoting back to Satan here. Now, what's the devil trying to do? The devil wants Jesus to force God's hand. He wants Jesus to demand that God prove his faithfulness, to test him. It's a subtle lie that goes something like this. You know, Jesus, you really can't trust in God to protect you. You don't really know if he's going to be there. Make him prove it. Put him to the test. And at the core, when you boil it all down, I think this is the lie. You can't really trust him to protect you. You need more proof. You you really can't trust him to protect you. Yet Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. God is our protector. And and, and when, when we forget that, we lose our way. Now, I suspect a number of us are struggling in that area tonight. We've bought into this lie that I have to protect myself. I mean, I know he's done things in the past, but I, I need more proof. I, I think it's up to me. I'm responsible for my own protection. Well, what are some symptoms that you've believed this lie? Well, chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety is rooted in the belief that I am responsible for my own protection. Self-protection. You know, when I don't think I can trust God to protect me, then I decide to protect myself. I do that in a lot of different ways. I shut down my heart. Uh, I avoid situations where I might be hurt again. I stop living by faith and I play defense. Uh, I enable a sick relationship because I fear what might happen if I live truthfully. Uh, Everything about me is now governed by fear, and I'm always just trying not to get hurt. At the root of that is a belief that I've got to protect myself. I can't move towards chaos. I can't move in faith. I can't take risks and step out because I'm not sure he's going to protect me. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to ask for fleece after fleece. Would you show me one more thing, Lord, before I do that? Would you give me one more clue? Well, I think one of the most subtle ways this works out, this, this lie that I believe I, have to, that I can't trust in God to protect me, is what, what the psychologists call codependency. 
When I don't trust God to protect me, my bent heart naturally looks for someone else to protect me. And so I enter into emotionally idolatrous relationships with other people because I now say, this friendship, this this roommate, this, this, this dear special person in my life, when you give another human being the power to redeem or destroy you, that's because you don't believe God can protect you. And I think this is a bigger problem in the body of Christ than we, than we like to let on. Um, and where I have particularly seen it over the years of ministry is with, uh, with young ladies. Uh, I've seen it a lot with, with men as well, but... This is an area where I've just seen again and again and again. I don't know why. Young men struggle with, with other things just as much. And I'm just going to say this because it was on my heart today and this afternoon. Sometimes what happens when you move into that kind of distorted use of power where you're in a friendship, two young ladies are in a friendship and they're looking to the other one to, to protect them, to be their God, it's very easily sexualized. And then there's another lie that comes along. And that lie is, if you had a sexual feeling for that young lady, you're gay. And your identity is that you're gay. Now, I know there's a lot of different views on homosexuality. We're not going to go into all those tonight. I know Christians understand that different way, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it is not true that a young woman who has a sexual feeling for another young woman because they've been in an intensely emotional, codependent relationship is gay. That's not true. That's not where you need to live out. So often we lose our freedom because we believe lies. Now let's look at the third um, temptation here. We find it in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And it almost seems like the devil's, he's sort of throwing long at this point. Um, He's putting it all out there. And, and he's not, there's no faking it anymore. There's no pretense anymore. What he's saying is, uh, look, Jesus, we all know you're going to wind up the ruler of the world. I read the prophecies too. Uh, I understand about the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I can kind of see where that's going. But let me, let me give you a, uh, an easier way. Here, we'll, we'll kind of put aside the cross thing. And if you follow me, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there and you can be king of the world. Well, what's the lie there? That you can have the kingdom without the cross. 
that there is an easier way. That the way of suffering and self-denial and discipleship is really not necessary. It's kind of optional. Received a, a note a while back from a young friend. He said, Doug, I wanted to get your opinion on something I've been thinking about. Recently, I watched Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. On the cross, Christ has a vision where he's able to see what his life could have been like if he hadn't chosen the cross. A beautiful wife, children, a warm home, and a peaceful, fulfilling work. An alternative life that seems simple, good, and lovely. Eventually, he comes out of this vision and reaffirms his place on the cross. For a while, I've been asking what it means to live the Christian life. This question has financial, family, and vocational consequences for me. Now, reading the Gospels, I'm struck by their harshness. A man has to leave his entire family, not even taking the time to bury his father. Christ tells his mother to get away because he has no mother. Christ claims he came not to bring peace, but the sword and to turn families against each other. He claims that we all must die and be born again, giving up life in order to find it. He claims that unless we sell everything, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Seeing Scorsese depict the beauty of the family life in contrast to Christ's crucifixion, I wonder why we must choose the cross. It feels masochistic. Life is already lonely, mean, and full of struggle. Why give up a family, material comfort, and some semblance of stability here on earth? And what do we give it up for? Well, we got, we got together and we talked about that. And, and one of the things I think we both realized was that there was some very subtle demonic deception going on there. And that what he was thinking, the call of the gospel was, had a few things added to it that aren't really in the gospels. And so we kind of unpacked that a little bit. So there was some distortion. But the other part was dead on. I mean, the Gospels really do say <laughs> that the way you find your life is to lose it and to follow the narrow way of the cross. So what happens if we start to believe this third lie that you can have the kingdom without the cross? What, what happens? I think you start to fall away. Find that however you want. We like to think that there are two ways to salvation. That there's the way of the cross, the way of the saints and the superstars, and then there's kind of a discipleship light that you can kind of audit Christianity and uh, show up every once in a while and never take the test, but you'll be okay because you were in the room and have the notes. But that is distinctively not how Christ describes it. Matthew 7.13 Enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So when you believe the lie that there is a kingdom without a cross I think you're headed for the wide gate. 
Somebody asked me recently, as often occurs, you know, we've been fairly full this summer, what are we going to do about growth in the fall? And that's a very fair, very good question. But one of the things that made me wonder is, I wonder if I preach the cross enough. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. Those who find it are few. The temptation ends. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. If you believe in the devil, you better believe in angels. There is strength for us when we go the narrow way. A long time ago, I read a science fiction story. I can't remember who wrote it, but I think this theme comes up often in science fiction literature. A time traveler goes back thousands of years, gets on a path, accidentally steps off on a butterfly. And then thousands of years later, comes back to the present and realizes that the whole world has changed because he crushed the butterfly 20,000 years ago. And I thought of that today because I think that's how our own belief systems work. That If we have small little imperceptible distortions of truth that are a part of our hard drive, they're a part of the way we view the world, they ultimately will distort our whole lives. They will lead to feelings, that lead to actions, that lead to death. And our enemy, the great splitter, knows this. He does not want us to fulfill our mission in life. And so he sets about crushing butterflies, distorting the beliefs we build our lives upon. So fight back. Identify the lies you believe and replace them with God's truth.